Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three types of podcast. We have our SJI seminar series, which is an opportunity to look back at some of our seminars and our conferences and listen to people like Tony Fahey, like Joe Larragui, like Anne Pettifor and others on a range of really interesting topics. We also have our 10 minute lesson series where we give a brief kind of eight to 15 minute session on policy areas we think you should know about. And then there's our interview series. And today's episode is one of those. So today I'm joined by Fergal McCann and he's head of function for stress testing, analytics and resilience in the Central Bank of Ireland's macro financial division. And we're going to be talking about some of the reports that were published very recently by the Central Bank in relation to long term mortgage arrears. I found this really interesting and I hope you enjoy it too. So Fergal, thank you so much for joining me today for our podcast. How are you doing? Great, Colette. Thanks a million for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on. It's, it's great to get the chance to, to explain some of our research to yourself uh, and your listeners. And speaking of your research, so, you know, middle of last month, um, you produced, so in July, you produced four papers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because there, there was a kind of a central theme in relation to long-term mortgage arrears and, and you know, the, the, the data around that. So can you just give us a bit of context and tell us about those papers generally first? Yeah, so maybe uh, at, at a very high level, so the four papers were released in conjunction with uh, with a speech by our Deputy Governor Ed Sibley at the BPFI. And I guess the aim was to really highlight a kind of set of, of new findings um, for, from projects we've been working on this year. So there was actually a mix. There, there was a focus both on the pandemic, uh, so it all related to distressed mortgage debt. Uh, some papers focus on the pandemic, on, on how payment breaks have evolved uh, and the policy response around them and, and what's happened afterwards. And two of the papers focus more on what you might call the legacy of the last crisis that was still with us even on the eve of the pandemic and, of course, hasn't gone anywhere in the last uh, 16 months, most of which relates to long-term mortgage arrears, Colette. But one of the papers kind of highlights, actually, that even though long-term mortgage arrears is probably the most acute, most, most striking maybe feature of the legacy of the last crisis. Um, one of the papers actually finds there are 95,000 accounts that are in some form of financial distress, um, most of which relates to pre-pandemic, uh, of which maybe 30,000 are in long-term arrears. So we actually have a wide range, uh, one in eight borrowers actually, with some form of distress, by which we mean there will be a repayment shortfall at the time that their loan matures. Now, of course, there's huge variety underneath that in terms of very, very deep long term, uh, but also borrowers where, you know, the, the shortfalls are relatively small and, and hopefully relatively minor tweaks to contracts and things um, should kind of do the job. Uh, so I guess the four papers touch on a wide range of things. Um, I don't know, would it be better to maybe touch on some themes one by one rather than me trying to give you a big overview? Sure. Um, so let's look at the, the long term mortgage arrears piece first. So it's a financial stability note. So I suppose the, the first thing is, you know, when we talk about long term mortgage arrears, mo many people would probably think, you know, five years, 10 years longer term. But that's not the case. Sure, it's not when you're talking about LTMA long term mortgage arrears, it's it's over the year. Yeah, so the way, and I guess this is really just a definitional thing, but the way we've been considering it this year in all of our analysis is, is considering any borrower or any mortgage with more than a year worth of arrears as being in, in long-term arrears. So that, so that brings you in the primary dwelling, the owner-occupier market, to, to 30,000 loans. Uh, now, we should point out, of course, that some families or some households can have more than one loan. So our, our best guess is that that 30,000 loans is about 25,000 households. It's about a 1.2 to 1 ratio, roughly. Um so among um, among that group, then you have a range of of um, arrears profiles, and about half of those borrowers are actually in arrears of more than five years, which you know is really really striking. Uh, it's not something you, that is the norm at all internationally, uh, and has a wide range of kind of sources that, that we can talk about as the chat goes on. Um, but it certainly has has posed one of the really major challenges uh, to all of us, both in regulators, lenders, borrowers, adv advocacy groups, and government, uh, in 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 sorting out the legacy of the last crisis. Yeah, I mean, that, that publication, there was a particular figure in it, figure four. Um, so for, for those listeners who want to play along, um, they can be downloaded from the Central Bank website. But there is a, a figure in it that tracks 
consumption expenditure and it's it's based on completion by borrowers of what's called a, an SFS, a standard financial statement um, against the insolvency services, reasonable living expenses. So the, basically what the reasonable living expenses are is the insolvency service um, policy people when the insolvency service, the legislation was being produced. They um, looked at the research, particularly from the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice, and they they took elements of that um, and, and called it basically that the reasonable living expenses. So it matches household types with what the insolvency service believe um, is appropriate expenditure items. Um, so there, there is kind of a, a, a bit of a difference from the Vincentian stuff. Um, but certainly two things that struck me when you look at that, that that comparison between the actual expenditures and the RLEs, the reasonable living expenditures, is there's a significant number of households that are living below that RLE amount. Um, and there's an even larger number that seem to be spending above that amount. So given, as I said, that the RLEs are taken from the Fincentian Partnership research around the minimum essential standard of living, um, and then it's been reduced because they deduct certain items um, that they didn't, they didn't feel kind of from a policy perspective would be, um, I suppose would wash on a, a political level, um, but also then there's no kind of accounting for rural and urban divide and, and, and things like that. And, um, you know, there's no car, there's no special circumstances, there's no childcare, uh, they can be added kind of as part of that. But given all of that, how useful do you think that comparison is as a barometer? Oh, thanks a million, Claire. It's a, it's a great question. I, I guess the way we think about the RLE when we're when we're doing the analysis of the market in the central bank is, um, you know, it provides a useful benchmark just to get a sense of kind of um, where living standards are at uh, when borrowers are engaging through the SFS process. So as you said, the the information we have in the SFS tells us that. If you take the RLE as a benchmark, half of long-term mortgage arrears uh, cases at the point that they engage, they're already spending below this amount. Now, as you've rightly pointed out, that is just a guide. There are a whole range of individual circumstances that will mean that number will be slightly different um, for different households. You know, if you were to argue that, you know, in reality, you know, certain households are likely to need to spend something more than the RLE, then you're probably looking at you know, it could be anything, it could be two thirds, it could be three quarters of borrowers are already spending le less than um, the, you know, a, a reasonable living amount, uh, I guess. So, I mean, there are challenges, of course, in, in defining. And this is, you know, it, it, it's, it's a measure that we can use across the market. Uh, I think it, it's probably reasonable to say that in practice, there's always going to be a bit of discretion that lenders have to kind of look at individual cases. I don't personally have enough information as to the extent to which that's used, although we do know from engaging with lenders that that at times, you know, a, a, a buffer beyond the RLE will be used when assessing how much um, how much income needs to be put aside for, for non-housing items. So I guess the way I would frame it in terms of our research is the, the, one of the real reasons I, I really was focused on looking at this, Colette, was that, you know, at times in the past when you've heard people talk about debt resolution in Ireland, a, a narrative sometimes emerges that, you know, borrowers, that they have plenty of room to adjust their spending. They could maybe get rid of certain items before they um, before we talk about writing down debt or, or adjusting repayment capacity. Uh, I think what you see from this analysis is, you know, a, a lot of the long term mortgage arrears cases, you know, the vast majority probably are are already before they even get a modified loan uh, spending you know a, a subsistence amount i would say a kind of a, a basic standard of living that i think you know for anyone analyzing the problem it's it's you know it's quite quite humbling in a way to 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 observe the, the numbers and to see that you know uh, people are already in very challenged circumstances before we even talk about how they might want to or, or need to adjust um, their lifestyles as part of a um, an overall debt um, resolution arrangement yeah, I think you're right. I think you know that 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 statistic there that half are spending below the RLE. Like given the fact, and certainly when I worked in in debt policy uh, full time, given the fact that the RLEs are a lower version of the MESL, the minimum essential standard of living, it's really concerning that there are people who are surviving on less than that again, in terms of their, their household finances and their household expenditures. I mean, I certainly, I remember 
giving some training uh, to a group and I'd ask them to bring anonymized budgets with them, anonymized financial statements with them um, and seeing one where a woman in a household of, of single mother with two children was spending a tenner a week on food. Like, you know, that, that's a, a household reliant on food banks. That's a household reliant on charity. Um, you know, and I, I do remember having this conversation with the insolvency service um, around the time that the, the RLEs were being formulated, um, where I was saying, you know, please be really careful with this because they will have policy implications that go beyond this legislation. They're going to be used in lending decisions. They're going, you know, so low income borrowers, so people on, you know, so for the RLE for a, a single person. Um, is much higher than your basic social welfare payment for a single person. So, you know, that restricts the, the borrowing capacity of someone. If they're in an emergency, what can you do? Um, you know, so that was one example. The other then obviously being in terms of, of how sustainable a mortgage might be, you're going to be basing lending decisions or, or underwriting decisions around all of this. Um, and the, the response was, no, the, the orallys are only used for the insolvency legislation. They would never possibly be used for other decisions in the financial area. Now, I think that showed a, a, a huge lack of insight at the time, um, particularly when, again, negotiating with, with lenders. We, we knew they were using, because they told us, they were using orally plus 10%, orally plus 20% in their underwriting decisions. So that had become policy. Um, so I think there is a, a, a huge risk inherent with all of that. And um, with the data that you have with the, the SFS, and I'm springing this question on you, um, you know, is it possible to see almost like what, what borrowers are spending or you know, what would be kind of an average or a median uh, type of expenditure? In terms of the long-term mortgage arrears borrowers? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have great breakdowns, if that's what you're asking. Uh, it, it's just a bit challenging to, to classify and categorize everything correctly. But, I mean, just to give listeners a kind of a sense, um, you know, the, the recorded median, so half of borrowers are at less than this, monthly expenditure is, is €1,800. Euro. Whereas the, the median orally is about, is just a, a little bit shy of that, seventeen ninety. So, um you know, that'll give you a sense, um, I think, in a national distribution of consumption, you know, you would find that that's, you know, I think relatively low. Um, we did some work previously with, uh, with a colleague, Terry O'Malley, during the pandemic and at the height of it last year, uh, looking at, you know, borrowers in general who had engaged with banks, not only in, in long term mortgage arrears. And we were looking at the time at trying to benchmark how much people are consuming or spending Um relative to their income versus the population. So we have useful population income data on how much people spend uh, relative to their income, you know, with the corollary being they can save the rest. And what, what we found was there was really striking differences. So, you know, at the high end, you know, the borrowers who are engaging with their bank to renegotiate debt, some of them are spending 100% of their income on kind of day-to-day -day living. And that's without spending on a mortgage. So that's with the mortgage payment being missed. Um, I think in the top quarter of households, you were looking at the vast majority of income uh, being spent, whereas, you know, the capacity to save is obviously far, far, far higher across the general population. So it'll just give you a sense that, you know, living standards, if you measure them by how much people have to spend outside of housing, you know, they really, really are challenged in this group. And I think it's important to kind of remember that, you know, there's a human side, of course, to every one of these data points, which is that, you know, these are definitely, you know, these are challenging circumstances for people. Has there been any research done um, in terms of, like, as you say, these are, are really challenged in terms of the income that they have and, and what they can spend it on. Has there been any research done in relation to, well, you know, how, like, the bad borrowing versus bad lending, I suppose, when it comes to these households? Like, if before they even pay a mortgage, they don't have any more income, like how how do we get here or is it just a matter of job losses during kind of the, the downturn? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, it's, it's very hard to disentangle how much was the demand side, what the borrower, you know, wanted and how much was the, the supply side, what the lender kind of, you know, gave them or or, or um, encouraged them to have, you know, and that, that's a long debate in, in financial economics. But I mean, mm -hmm. one thing that's definitely true is, 
you know, borrowers who ended up in distress during the last decade, you know, mortgage default rates and things like that, you know, they are highly correlated with the origination loan to value and loan to income. I mean, most of which comes from pre-2008. So the looser lending standards back pre-2008, like absolutely are a strong explainer of, of what happened from 2009-10 onwards in terms of defaults. You know, that was that was one of the main motivating forces around introducing macroprudential rules on new lending in, in 2015. Uh, when you talk about at the point of engagement, these borrowers having extremely low capacity to save or to or to um uh, to 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 pay down their mortgage. I think what you the real explainer there is that just the sheer extent of the job loss from two thousand and eight onwards. So, th- so these borrowers, some of them did have very loose credit conditions and inappropriate loans when they bought when they initially took out their debt. Some didn't. You know, there there is a distribution in there of people with reasonable originating loan to incomes and very high loan to incomes that were inappropriate. But the one thing that's for sure is that. The way that the system works in Ireland, of course, where, you know, if you were on a relatively high or even moderate income, the fall down to social welfare can be quite large in terms of monthly income. Uh, You know, I think at a time when we were analysing the SFS, the unemployment rate within the SFS group might have been 40% or higher. So an awful lot of the people who ended up in this situation did lose jobs. And of course, just the, the, the capacity to pay, regardless of your originating loan to income ratio, is just extremely challenged uh, once you, you're in that situation of job loss. So your experience, um, and this might be a, a leap, um, but your experience in terms of what you're seeing in, on the SFS doesn't correlate with the strategic defaulters argument that people are waiting it out. Yeah, so this is a really a, a really tough question, you know, empirically and kind of more widely. I mean, I, the first thing to say about the SFS, of course, is that that's among those who engage, right? So it's it is clear that among those who've engaged and filled out an SFS, um, you know, the strategic default type of argument, or you know, um, the sort of won't pay as opposed to can't pay. Uh, that doesn't really hold much water among the engaging group. I think it's clear that the the, the repayment burdens are substantial. So we have information in that in that financial stability note that you've we've been discussing for the last few minutes about um, debt service ratios. And at the point when people are engaging, the median debt service ratio is forty three percent of net income, and it's sixty percent at the average. So I mean, these are way off the scale in terms of what you might think is an, an appropriate amount of your income to, to be used servicing debt. And that comes down to the fact that these people have had such challenged incomes. I guess yeah. where there's a slightly different part of the debate is around the, the group of borrowers who aren't completing those SFSs that are being kind of classified as non-cooperating. So we do have some, you know, there is a nuance there around whether some of those borrowers that are being classified as non-cooperating are actually attempting to engage with their lender and there are process type issues that mean even though they are making efforts it's not quite coming through in the data so what the data would tell you is that about half of all long-term cases are non-cooperating which you know does sound substantial mm-hmm. uh, but i think it, it is fair to say that among that half that are non-cooperating there probably is a mix of those who simply have checked out of the system versus those who are making some attempts and it just hasn't kind of landed with an engagement and an sfs uh, for now yeah, there's a definitional issue there as well, certainly from my time with it, um, where some lenders were saying that borrowers weren't engaging, but actually, you know, these people were ringing every week. They were having those conversations over the phone. They just hadn't signed off on an SFS, but they could have been engaging, you know, in terms of like, as opposed to kind of engaging under the definitions, engaging in real life terms every week for a matter of months. Um, so it, it is just a, I suppose it's, a, it's an interesting kind of piece when you, you read those tweets or you read those kind of headline things of these aren't engaging, they don't want to pay, they, you know, it's, it's all that kind of won't pay versus can't pay, as you say, um, to actually be able to kind of look behind it. Um, Sure. And I mean, it is something that our, our deputy governor highlighted in, in his speech the, the week before last, uh, you know, that th- there is an onus on the lender side around, you know, the kind of quality of the way that they engage to, to ensure that engagement can be as meaningful as possible. But I suppose we, you know, to be fair and balanced, it also has to be pointed out that in Ireland, there is there is a group of borrowers who probably just simply haven't engaged. And that might be something that that's closer to what people call strategic default. I guess what's really hard is to sort of quantify among the non-cooperating group as it's measured statistically, how many fall into the are trying to, to cooperate versus have simply uh, checked out and, and are, and are, are you know, g- gaming the system might be an unfair way to put it, but that, that is the type of terminology you sometimes hear. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it is. It's a very qualitative piece. It's a very subjective piece that's very hard to quantify for proper statistical analysis, because, again, within the non-engaging cohort, it, there could be a variety of different reasons um, rather than just sitting on your piles of money um, that you could have. And like it's it's again, it's I suppose this isn't an issue for you, but it frustrates me um, when I see the lack of nuance in all of this. It's not good versus bad. It's not, exactly. you know, somebody trying to swindle somebody else. It's actually it's it, there's just a plethora there's a huge expanse of of reasons and and people um the other figure that kind of struck me in that same publication around the long-term mortgages was was the next one was figure five and it looks at the the distribution of of monthly surpluses or deficits and again another really worrying um piece was that high distribution of households that are are in the red each month so like some are as as high as 4,000 or more um, euro per month, every month. Um, is there any you know, insight again from the SFS as to how that's actually being funded? How could that possibly be managed consistently? So I think I think the, the simple answer there, Colette, is that it's not. You know, so, so when we're measuring surplus versus deficit here, just for people who haven't read the paper as uh, in as much detail as you have, which I'm sure is everyone on the listening, <laughs> uh, the... Uh, the, the deficits here are basically your current income as you report it when you engage with your lender, minus your um, your expenditure that you're reporting in the F- SFS on non-housing items, minus all the debt obligations you owe rather than that you pay. So the deficit simply uh, is is telling us that, that that these are the people accumulating substantial arrears. So it, it, it's it's not that it's being funded; it's it's, it's just getting clocked up uh, in, in arrears, basically. So just to give people a sense, you know, we. Um, we have a group of borrowers, we estimate it to be about a fifth. And this is, of course, of those who are engaging. So this isn't a fifth of the 30,000 per se in long-term mortgage arrears, but a fifth of those engaging, filling out an SFS, their income is so low that they actually don't have any capacity to pay a mortgage at all. So their their income is below um, uh, the, the minimal um, living amount, the RLE. So, so, so they're, they really, really can pay nothing. Th- then we kind of estimate that there, there's another substantial group who... You know, they're in deficit, but they can pay something towards their mortgage. Uh, and, and then we kind of estimate that, you know, there might be in and around a third, and it can be hard to, 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 to be really precise about this, but in and around a third, where it does look like with some kind of tweaking, perhaps they can actually pay off their mortgage. They, they, they seem to have enough income if they, if, if, you know, various kind of restructures can be put in place, they seem to have enough income that they could pay down the loan uh, by the age of 65. So I think one of the really important insights from that analysis and the, and the overall uh, speech by Deputy Governor Sibley, Sibley and our own uh, suite of papers is just to highlight just how varied and how many different types of borrower and how far we are from a simple one size fits, fits all kind of an, an answer here to this problem. Yeah, I mean, there's a there is a piece there like, an, you know, you, you, you said it yourself in terms of this is what the debt payments are not necessarily the debt payments that are being made. Um, when you talk about kind of the, the looking at it to restructure so that, you know, there's a, a cohort within that that could actually make some or all of their mortgage payments, presumably that is prioritizing the mortgage over any other type of debt. So the way we're calculating it there, we do actually allow for um, other debts to be paid as well, the way that number is calculated. So there would be kind of consumer debts there as well. I guess what you, you might even argue that if mortgage debt is prioritised ahead of all other debts, that perhaps the, the number that, that might be able to service in, in total uh, could actually be larger. But that's not necessarily something you would recommend per se. That's yeah, that, that's for I mean, borrowers and their creditors, I guess, to figure out. And I you know in particular when it comes to insolvency arrangements, that can be a very powerful coordinating mechanism where there are multiple uh, creditors. And again, just to touch on that, you know, one thing that really has come out of our own work in the bank this year, and the deputy governor was was clear on it in his in his speech two weeks ago, is um, you know just the importance of, of the PIA as one of the options available. And, and I think one thing we are seeing is that there there's a real variety in the way in which lenders engage with this process. Uh, some of them much more constructive than others. So some possibly with a lot more skepticism. You know, I think it has been improving over time. Um, but, you know, we do really see, especially when you start to think about these cases where um, 
repayment capacity is quite weak you know even in cases where there's a moderate repayment capacity that the that you know ultimately you might be seeing a half of mortgage debt being able to be cleared over the lifetime of the loan like there's a group of borrowers that are kind of in that sort of space you know the, the PIA uh, does look like it it offers you know a really a really good option for some of those borrowers and i think one one recommendation that that comes out of all of this work is is for more constructive engagement with that system as one of the potential avenues given however that the the PIA is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity so you you get it and it's it's gone um you know is there and I mean, I'm not saying that's a, a necessarily a bad thing, but like thinking about how kind of insolvency and bankruptcy works in other jurisdictions where there's kind of a fresh start and, you know, that there might be a window where you can't engage with those those systems again. But then after that, should circumstances change, then you can. Um, but, like, you know, is there a scope or is there any sort of discussion to use kind of an, a non legislative structure very similar to a PIA so for example you know there's a a BPFI protocol around non-mortgage debt and that that kind of has similar things in it around you know what you prioritize how you engage with your lender and who gets what all of those things and and it it, you know it it, it works with third-party organizations as well Um, but it just kind of strikes me that if and again it comes down to kind of suppose like lender engagement as well like if it was more widely accepted that this is just a a better way to to move on both for lenders and for borrowers that there could be something that wasn't a statutory implement that you know would be equally as helpful yeah it's 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 not one i've given a huge amount of thought to i mean the only thing i I would say about the the pia is just from from kind of reading up on, on people who are much kind of closer to the topic like it does sound like in an international context it is you know i mean borrower friendly mightn't be the right word but it, it is a, a very kind of fruitful and constructive way for borrowers to go you know it's it, it's 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 considered to be uh, you know a strong framework uh, to arrive at solutions for borrowers I, I do take your point about it being a kind of a a, a once-off attempt um I suppose in terms of ongoing engagement, um, you know, another message that we're trying to highlight in, in the research here is, is the importance of trying to resolve uh, cases within the financial system first. So, you know, I mean, there are cases where, you know, the repayment capacity looks sort of reasonably high from the SFS data and from the way uh, lenders are reporting it. Um, and, you know, there's a suite of solutions that are there already before you get to the PIA. I think some people would call them you know, private solutions or informal solutions. So they're the kind of, you know, the, the, the on balance sheet solutions that we, we, we've we seen over the last decade, like term extensions and split mortgages and arrears capitalizations and other. And, you know, I think another message that comes from, from, from the deputy governor's speech and this work is the importance of, you know, lenders exploring the full extent of their suite of options first. Uh, to make sure they really have stressed, you know, whether there, there is an appropriate um, solution to the borrower circumstances. But I think beyond that, if you think about it in a waterfall kind of a way, you know, beyond that suite of solutions, I think the PIA has to be one of the, the solutions on the table uh, to, to deliver outcomes for borrowers. Yeah. And then before I, I leave that that one publication, um, there was another piece just in relation to the, the age profile. So, particularly those households where the oldest borrower is 65 plus 70s and 80s, you know, how sustainable without some level of a policy intervention are those mortgages? Because usually if they're in arrears, they've also foregone the life assurance element. The lender isn't banking on being repaid once the, the borrower passes. Yeah, so I think this is a really important policy question. So just again, for, for listener benefit, we, we estimate that about a quarter of long-term mortgage arrears cases are um, have the kind of, let's say, head of household or the borrower filling in the SFS form uh, 60 years of age or older. So I think, you know, one obvious implication there is that that group um are unlikely to experience income growth for the rest of their life. I think that that's pretty clear. Uh, and we're already looking at very challenged uh, repayment capacity because they, you know that, that's why they've ended up in long-term mortgage arrears. So uh, yeah, one of the recommendations kind of coming from our work this year is, is, is just the importance of thinking about tailored solutions that are slightly tweaked to the circumstances of borrowers. And age is one really obvious case where you know the typical suite of solutions are unlikely to work. So you, you can imagine cases where, 
uh, repayments are reduced on a monthly basis, but um, principal is foreborn or, or becomes due later down the line. So a split mortgage does something like that. Uh, there have been other cases like lifetime interest only, but that may not be necessarily appropriate for all borrowers. Um, but there have been interesting sort of cases like that um, covered lately. But I think, you know, when you're looking at borrowers who are on the older side where repayment capacity is unlikely to improve and where you're trying to think about solutions to keep them in their home for as long as possible perhaps for the end of their life you know i i think one one obvious implication there is that the housing equity may need to be part of the solution at the end so it may well be that the, the estate of, of the family ends up kind of paying off the loan so that that's uh, you know, there are a few different names for products like that kind of lifetime lending, lifetime interest only, these kinds of things. Um, you know, not to say that that's the right thing for all borrowers. And of course, it comes with a big cost in, in, in that there's much less to bequeath uh, to loved ones if, if that solution is arrived at. But it, it certainly strikes me as one area to explore further, to, to, to offer solutions that minimize the kind of liquidity pressure month to month uh, and allow a solution that keeps people in their homes. And I think for an awful lot of the cases that that is ultimately what is, is trying to be achieved uh, when, when we think about debt resolution for these kind of people. And I mean, like you, you talk about the, the housing equity thing and we'll, we'll talk about solutions uh, a little bit later on. But I think it's, it's again, it's interesting that these products exist that tie in with the equity because if, if older borrowers are in arrears, the likelihood is that they their payments on their mortgage uh, protection is are gone or they're you know they won't have that protection. Um, so there needs to be some sort of thinking beyond that. Um, just to, but I will come back to you on, on that. Just in relation to the another um, piece that was published the behind the data, the the end of term payment shortfalls. And I have to say, I read this with, with huge interest because it genuinely was something that hadn't struck me. Um, and it was, you know, it's it's just incredible that there is such a, a cohort of loans that there will be such a, a, a shortfall on. Do you want to just go through, I suppose, first of all, what that is, what that means for people? Yeah, so I should I should tip my hat to, to my colleagues in, on the supervision side of the central bank who, who, who wrote this, Alan Kearns and David Dignan and their team. Um, I guess what they've done here is they've asked lenders. So one of the really useful things about this research is it, it, it covers all lenders, whether bank or non-bank. And I guess one thing we haven't mentioned on the podcast yet is uh, how important non-banks have become. So retail credit firms, credit servicing firms, uh, they account for more than a half of all long-term arrears cases now. Whereas, of course, at origination, the vast majority of them would have been at the retail banks. So this research, the behind the data, it actually, it, it's a full system-wide view as opposed to retail banks only, which is really useful. So that's just the first thing to point out. In terms of how they've classified things, they, they've asked lenders to, uh, to think about three types of borrower. Uh, so among those that would have some shortfall at, at mortgage maturity. So a kind of a high, a moderate and a low ability to repay. Uh, and, and what you find is, you know, when you, when you group those three, you end up with about um, 95,000 accounts that have some shortfall. Uh, so 13% of all of all mortgages, you know, 14 billion of debt. So these are really substantial. So among those then, like with everything we've been talking about so far, Colette, there's a real variety. So the kind of high ability to pay, pay group, they're, they're going to only have a shortfall of 10% of their mortgage balance, balance or less. Uh, that's about 32,000. Uh, so, so, you know, they're a mix of borrowers with short-term arrears now uh, and, and no restructure in place. That's the predominant group. We have another group who, who do have a restructure in place, but maybe it's not fully sustainable. So we think, you know, when you're talking about borrowers with such small shortfalls, there must surely be a solution within the suite that's already available that with the right engagement uh, and the right tweaking of, of terms, you know, the, these really look like resolvable cases, you would hope. Uh, then we move on to the moderate ability to pay group. There's about 16,000 there. So these are our borrowers who are going to have a shortfall, anything up to 50% of their total balance. So there's, there's substantial shortfalls in play in this group. And interestingly, the vast majority of these are actually low arrears balances right now. So either zero arrears or, or less than a year. And they are restructured. So the interesting thing here is that these may be things that they're unsustainable kind of restructures that, that aren't fully fully working or, or they're 
it could be that the borrower is actually making full payments on the contracted terms right now, but there is a there is a warehouse or some principal payment due at maturity, and for the moment there isn't a clear agreement on how that will be paid. And I think one interesting policy question there comes back to, you know, the extent to which lenders can actually put in place agreements with borrowers right now to provide certainty for everyone around what might happen to those principal payments when they fall due at, at mortgage maturity. Um, but then the, the the biggest group and the really striking group is the group that have low or uncertain ability to re- repay. So these are people who either haven't engaged or have extremely low repayment capacity. Their, their shortfalls will be more than 50%. And what we find is there's 46,000 uh, mortgages in that. So you've got your 30,000 long-term mortgage arrears cases that we already talked about, but you've another group then who are just like I talked about before, they are restructured, they currently have low arrears, but there is something about their contract term that means there's a substantial uh, warehouse or some other principal uh, component that's going to be remaining uh, at maturity. Uh, and then within that group, then you've got your your, your kind of 30,000-ish uh, long-term arrears cases uh, as well. So that just shows you that the, 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 the sheer extent of, of different types of distress, you know, more than a decade on from the last crisis and, and be the variety in terms of, you know, what the implications might be for, for how these cases are going to be solved. Yeah, I mean, certainly when warehousing was first talked about, um, I remember having some reservations for exactly that reason in relation to, well, how can you be sure that they're going to be able to pay that off? Um, and the thinking at the time was, well, you know, you'd be looking at parents with children, maybe school going age, and then the children will leave, the parents will downsize, there'll be equity there and they'll pay down the debt. All things being equal and things working out the way they should, that seemed like a reasonable solution. But of course, things don't always work as they should. And I know certainly in one PIA case, the judge called into question whether or not warehousing could actually be part of an insolvency solution, given that, you know, there was still this debt hanging outside the the PIA term. I suppose I've just in terms of looking at that, like, you know, you have those those borrowers and long term mortgage arrears. They have a low ability to repay, but they haven't been restructured. Like how can that possibly be the case? So I suppose it's a mix of things, Colette. One, there is the non-engagement element that, you know, we can't shy away from and it, and it does exist. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a portion of that non-cooperating group. Um, and as we mentioned, hard to estimate how big it is, but, but they are there. And then among those who have engaged with the bank. So w- one thing we found in previous research back in 2018 was that there was a pretty large group of long-term mortgage arrears borrowers who actually had had a temporary arrangement earlier in the crisis but that hadn't stuck and that had been the only point of engagement and, and there was no follow-on. So that could have been either from the borrower or the lender side. It's not really clear from the, the data that we have available to us um, why that happened. But that, that was actually much bigger than the group of borrowers who had never engaged at all. So this kind of attempt to do something, maybe extend and pretend, you know, one year interest only, that kind of arrangement. Uh, and, and of course, that was a huge motivation for central bank policy intervention in 2013 around um, the mortgage arrears resolution targets, March. This was aimed squarely at this problem that there were too many unsustainable short-term arrangements being put in place that weren't appropriate. But unfortunately, I think there's part of the group that are not restructured in long-term mortgage arrears and being classified as having substantial shortfalls at the end of term. There's a fair degree of initial temporary arrangements that that didn't work uh, and that haven't been followed up on. So so that's certainly part of the story. There was another behind the data publication and it looked at the allowances that are permitted under the central bank's macroprudential rules. So you've got your loan to value, you've got your stuff like 90% or 80%, depending on what type of buyer you are. And then you have your your loan to income. So you're three and a half times your income. Um, And then there are allowances, you know, that, that, exceptions can be made there's an element of discretion for banks and it you know it has to be a kind of a certain proportion in terms of their their loan book looking again at at that data you know Dublin seems to account for quite a lot of the allowances where the allowances were made and that might be a product of of Dublin house prices has there been any research in, in how this all of these different these various different documents publications that we've talked about how they all fit together so you know for example those households who got 
um, the allowances when they took out their loan, are they more likely to get into trouble further down the line when you look at the, the arrears data? So it's a, it's a great question. I guess it, it really highlights the distinction. We almost have two mortgage markets in Ireland. We have the group who originated pre-2008 and all of the non-performing loan and mortgage default challenges predominantly relate to that group. And then we have the group that originated since 2010 when banks became much more conservative in their lending standards. And that was copper fastened with the macro prudential rules in 2015. So the short answer is, if you look at loans originated since 2015, who've had an allowance under the macro prudential regime, uh, the, the default rates or the arrears rates are extremely low today. Uh, and that's partially because they're just simply, um, there hasn't been uh, much time uh, for, for the loans to default, I guess. Uh, B, they were issued during a buoyant economic period from 2015, right up to the eve of the pandemic. There was really, you know, house prices were just rising that entire time, unemployment was falling or steady. So there, there weren't really these kind of systemic events that might lead to mortgages defaulting. Uh, and then, of course, the pandemic happened. So the, and, and there have been very few defaults during the pandemic because the policy response has been so accommodative, both in terms of payment breaks themselves and income supports from the government. So I guess that short answer is you just don't see it. Because you don't see allowances defaulting more because it just the opportunity almost for them to default hasn't really presented itself. Now, what you can see in terms of kind of credit risk or borrower distress profiles, uh, my colleague Edward Gaffney has done some work on this, um, is you know, origination loan to income ratios were certainly correlated with payment break take up last year. So if you did get an allowance, if you were up in that loan to income pool of kind of four, four and a half times your income, uh, those borrowers had higher propensities to need a payment break last summer than those originating at a lower, let's say more affordable uh, loan to income ratios. And this was true both for loans originated since the macro prudential regime and for all loans. So this affordability piece really uh, does come through uh, when we look at the pandemic, just as it came through when we looked at default rates back in 2011, 12, 13, the exact same patterns were there. It's really interesting. It's, it's really interesting for the pandemic, given the profile of people, sectoral profile, the, the employment type that would have lost their job or would have been, had to avail of the, the pup because, you know, like we, we know, for example, it's the lower income workers. I suppose I, I wouldn't have expected that it was the lower income workers that would have availed of the allowances, just given that restriction, how, how conservative borrowing has become and, and, and rightly so in my view. Just finally then, you know, the, the million dollar question, what do we do? Um, so you mentioned, I suppose, the, the suite of solutions and the Code of Conduct on Mortgage Arrears provides a, a list of ARAs, alternative repayment arrangements that may be available from various different lenders. And, you know, it was always kind of a bugbear of mine and others in this space that it wasn't kind of a mandated list that every lender has to provide this so that the the wording around, you know, provide, making sure that all of the suite of options available by the lender is, is offered or is considered um, because you could have lenders that only have one or two of a possible kind of nine or 10. Looking at that and looking at the, the insolvency legislation and the PIAs, and it, it has been, I mean, out of the, the three different new types of insolvency that came in, it, it certainly has been the more successful. I suppose what policy solutions or policy changes can be made that would actually really help? Yeah, so you, you are right. That's the million dollar question. And, and of course, I'm, I'm only coming at this as, as, as one uh, economist from within the central bank. So there's, there's only so much I can I can recommend. But I suppose, you know, uh, trying to take the, the research, the four papers we published in the round and our own our own deputy governor's remarks, you know, some of the themes that really come through are, you know, one it's questionable that the full suite of solutions has really been tested against, you know, is it appropriate for all of the, the, the wide range of borrower circumstances that, that, that are out there? So I suppose one recommendation is just before you even think about alternative solutions, to, you know, and the central bank is really making a priority of this now is, is to just ensure and to really push all lenders to, to convince themselves and to convince um, the regulator that they are indeed, you know, really 
using the full range of solutions that might possibly be available to them and, and can they be more, be more innovative in, in the offering? So that's one. And that's before you get outside the financial system at all. So I think that it really highlights the kind of triage almost that there is you know, solutions and issues that are for the financial system itself to solve. And then there are, there are cases where you might need to go a bit wider. I think the personal insolvency then is a kind of an interesting case where it's it's not necessarily just within the financial system, nor does it involve kind of government intervention. It's kind of a, a halfway house where you, you are engaging an outside party through, through the system. Um, I, I think it's clear that a more constructive type approach across lenders and the, the variation that lenders seem to have and how they engage with PIA lo- looks like a real um, kind of obvious point from the work that we've been doing this year that, that could be improved on. You know, thinking deeply about um, borrower profiles, you know, things like the age question, whether there are there are solutions that are really tailored for, for um, circumstances like uh, people's age um, that really needs to probably needs more development and you know i suppose there's no silver bullet there is 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 the answer that you know new products need to be developed possibly not is the answer simply that new loan owners need to appear again not necessarily it may be that these solutions can be arrived at as things stand um, but i mean I, I'm, it's probably not for me to say exactly what the right way to do it is but it's clear that uh, uh, differentiating treatment for things like like age is crucial um I think there is there is a piece around an engagement, and that's both the lenders own kind of the quality of the way they engage and facilitate the cooperation of the borrower, but also the the question we've been grappling with for ten years around you know, where are the borrowers who aren't engaging? Can the services do more to get to get to them? It, it seems extremely challenging. I suppose ultimately, at the end of the line, there's the functioning of the court system as part of that question, and you know the the the, the reality of repossession in cases of prolonged non-engagement. I suppose it, it has to be considered as part of the overall functioning of the financial system. I think the recommendation is clearly that it's a, a last resort, and that's something that many central bank senior officials have. have said uh, over the years but I think it would be wrong to omit it as part of the overall package and I think kind of collaboration across the system in terms of how we deal with the really distressed uh, cases so we, we talked about a fifth of all uh, long-term mortgage arrears borrowers simply having no income at all to service debt and, and another maybe quarter having very minimal uh, repayment capacity so, so so you're talking about very small amounts that can be paid month to month so the mortgage to rent scheme is clearly one answer there. But the mortgage to rent scheme, you know, we know there are challenges in its operationalization. It's 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 possibly fragmented across um, different um, uh, local authorities. I suppose one other thing about it is that it, it can be quite expensive when you think about the outlay from the state over uh, a 20 year horizon. And, that, and that's all kind of highlighted by our deputy governor a week or two ago, you know, it's clear that that's one part of the solution. It doesn't feel like it would be the right solution for the entirety of the long-term mortgage arrears group. Uh, and I guess one question is whether there are alternative ways that that public funding uh, can be used uh, to support borrowers to remain in their homes. Because, of course, we, we should remember that mortgage to rent exists uh, as as a solution that you know st- uh, resolves the debt problem, but also keeps the borrower in their home. So, so, so there may well be uh, other solutions that are, are perhaps less expensive in the long run for the state. And I mean, one, one thing that I have noticed uh, in kind of reading about this internationally is, you know, that there was a point where in the UK there was short-term subsidies for mortgage interest to be paid by the state in, in certain uh, particular cases that, uh, you know, I, I don't know too much about the detail of precisely the, the mechanisms, but, you know, th- there may well be other ways to deploy state resources apart from um, uh, mortgage to rent that, that are part of this entire uh, suite of options. Yeah, I mean, even within mortgage to rent rules, you know, you, you've got, obviously you have to be eligible for social housing as a first step. So you've got your income limits there that might preclude a certain amount of people, notwithstanding the fact that they they still can't service their, their current expenditures and debts. You've then got the issue of being over or under accommodated. So, you know, you, you can stay in your own home and have mortgage to rent if that home has been deemed to be over accommodating you. And I, I think, you know, certainly when, when it was being reviewed back in 2017, I suppose the reviews didn't go far enough. Now, they, they did make improvements, but it's still taking a two year kind of cycle to get through. Um, and we saw what happened with, with Home for Life when the, the new rules for, for stamp duty for entities that, that were buying 10 properties or more 
And they immediately came out and said, well, we have mortgage to rent and train for 200 households. All of these are going to have to be paused or stopped because, you know, the stamp duty is going to be an issue. Um, I think it was the, it's interesting that, you know, the legislation on that then turned to be unless you are accommodating social housing provision. Um, so, you know, there, there's a there's an element there that could be questioned uh, in terms of how our laws are made. But outside of that, you know, the, the uptake is relatively low on mortgage to rent. The local authorities, I know, for example, there wasn't there was some research done in Mayo uh, by the Money Advice and Budgeting Service in Mayo um, that they didn't have any mortgage to rent a number of years ago. Uh, and the reason being, you know, that to manage that for the local authorities was actually just too expensive, too unwieldy. They're kind of, you know, unique bills. Some of them are in, in isolated areas. They just, they couldn't take it on as part of, of their um, property book because they just weren't able to actually manage the, the housing itself. I think something like the proposal that, that we're currently making, um, and again, you had mentioned the, the kind of housing equity at, at end of life, those kind of loans. But one of the, the proposals we're making is around having an equity stake. So there's all of this discussion around buying out equity or giving equity loans early on in the process for first time buyers that meet certain criteria under the new affordable housing loan, but actually diverting that to mortgages with borrowers in real distress um, and having that government fund might actually do a lot more good at that end um, than it would you know, at the, at the front end and certainly than it would to comparison to mortgage to rent. Yeah, and I think what you're touching on there really just highlights how, you know, in the re- when we're talking about long-term arrears cases, you, you're really moving beyond the realm solely of financial policy, and it, it's a blend of financial policy, housing policy, and social policy. So when, when we talk about, you know, collaboration across the system, you know, I think it really is, you know, there's a there's a real a need, I think, to just ensure that, you know, there's a joined-up type of an approach in, in the sense that, you know, for example in the absence of thinking through the housing policy implications, you might say a borrower in positive equity should just sell their home. But if that positive equity is extremely small, so they, they might simply have a small t- few thousand euro of positive equity, uh, what do they do then in an environment of extremely high rents and um, uh, and social housing lists? So, uh, so I do think, you know, when you think about it through that lens, a wider range of possible ways to that the state itself uh, can, can intervene beyond just mortgage trend. It, it, it's certainly one of, of the uh, the ways in which uh, this can can move forward, along with the the range of um, priorities that you know involve the loans being resolved within the financial system. Which we do think, in terms of sequencing, of course, uh, is the way to go. It makes more sense to explore to to whatever extent uh, the financial system can how we can restructure these loans while keeping them on the balance sheet as a first port to call. But we can't ignore that at the end of the line, there are cases where it's as much about social policy as it is about financial policy, what happens next to those borrowers. And I suppose one thing to point out to tie it all together is just the importance of this for everyone in Ireland. It's not just about these borrowers, you know, the existence of these long-term arrears cases, you know, it has implications for the cost of credit for all new mortgage borrowers. I think that's clear. Uh, and, you know, maybe even the, the way Ireland is viewed as a functioning financial system by international investors, you know, that there's a both at the individual level and the system level, there's clearly uh, a rationale for for resolving these cases as, as rapidly and as, as fairly as as can be achieved, I think. Um, I leave it on that note. Thank you so much, Fergal. Um, thank you so much for your time and for all of your insight. Colette, thanks a million. It was great to chat. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you have any ideas or anybody you'd like to see um, here on the podcast, uh, please do get in touch, secretary at socialjustice.ie. Feel free to also look at our website, socialjustice.ie, for a range of different policy analysis, our publications, and all manner of videos and presentations. Thank you. Until next time, stay safe.